In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening, welcome. Continue our exploration of the uh, introduction by Carl Brunholzel to uh, this book, Luminous Heart. And I think it's helpful to remember that he's, he's uh, trying to provide an extensive discussion about the key issues that are presented in the many texts that he includes translations of in the book. And so we will be going through these issues in terms of how they're presented by these translations or these texts by Rongjong Dorje and Jomgun Kongchul in particular, a couple of others uh, throughout the rest of the book. So in, uh, in that sense, he's opening the discussion or initiating the discussion of these difficult topics. And so we're on page 53 of the introduction, Mind's Fundamentally Different outlook on itself and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through what I thought were like the highlights somewhat quickly uh, there's a little bit of uh, it's it feels like a little bit of redundancy perhaps here and there and then hopefully I'll make it through to the text by uh, Vasubandha that I circulated so on page 53 of the hard copy and the section called Mind's Fundamentally Different Outlook on Itself in the um, digital version, he begins with a discussion of this concept of a change of state in Sanskrit, Ashraya Parivriti. And although he doesn't say it, oh, sorry. <coughs> funny, he, he doesn't say it, but in this sutra called the uh, Mahayana Sutra, Alam, uh, Mahayana Lanka Avatara Sutra, the sutra of uh, the, the Buddha's supposed visit to the island of Sri Lanka, this concept is discussed a lot, that there's a turning about at the base in the Aliya Vijnana, that the Aliya Vijnana, um, as the culmination of the Bodhisattva path, or at the culmination of the Bodhisattva path, the, the Aliya Vijnana, which during the course of, uh, of one's time as a sentient being, it um, looks outward at its different... Uh, 
maturations, as they're called, or different evolutions of uh, further levels of consciousness, i.e. the seventh, sixth, and the fifth through the first consciousness, and the Alayavijnana, and the seventh consciousness, imagine a world, imagine a self, imagine other, self and other, and imagine that uh, phenomena exist on their own and in material form. And that through the practice of the Bodhisattva path, which as we'll get to involves uh, relinquishment and cultivation, those two aspects, one completely transforms oneself into a Buddha. And in the Lanka Avatar Sutra, this transformation is described as occurring by the um, Aliya Vajnana, the eighth consciousness, going through a convulsion of sorts. And uh, instead of looking outward towards the seventh and uh, six through one consciousnesses, it looks inward on itself and it sort of implodes and dissolves and we're left with Buddha nature, pure and simple and Buddhahood. And so there's this presentation of there being a change of state and this is not a new idea in the Buddhist tradition. It goes back to the time of the Buddha where there's this notion that uh, uh, the key point in the path of a practitioner of Buddhism is the enlightenment experience. And uh, while there's different levels of enlightenment in any of the schemes, uh, both uh, uh, early tradition or Nikaya or uh, Shravaka or Theravan scheme, as well as in the Bodhisattva scheme, there are different levels of enlightenment. I saying? <laughs> there are different levels of enlightenment. Yeah, why was I saying that? Uh, it's a key point on the path, the enlightenment experience. Yeah, <laughs> little little senior senior moment, huh? Yeah. Um, the implosion of the alaya vishnana going from outward to inward. <laughs> yes. So, in, in any of these. Uh, versions, what happens is that one goes through, a, uh, there it is, a change of state, which is the main topic that he, that Carl undertakes in this chapter, in this section of the introduction, a change of state. And in the early tradition, this is called a change of lineage. One is no longer a sentient being, one is a, uh, 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 a supreme being, or an aria, a noble one. And this is the uh, path of seeing. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, path of stream entry in the early tradition. Where in the early tradition, there's four stages of enlightenment. Stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and then arhatship. And then in the, in the Mahayana and Bodhisattva tradition, there are basically uh, three major uh, places where enlightenment occurs. One is at the path of seeing, the first bhumi, 
And the second one is the transition from the seventh Bhumi to the eighth Bhumi, where one goes from what are called the impure Bhumis to the pure Bhumis. And then uh, the, the uh, so-called eleventh Bhumi, which is Buddhahood. And so uh, this change of lineage occurs where one is no longer a sentient being, but one is a Buddha. And uh, this presents um, this presents this notion that somehow there's something that changed from one thing into something else. And so uh, various traditions, are, or probably all traditions of Buddhism in one way or another, try to describe how this happens, uh, given that Buddhahood or Buddha nature or uh, in the, at least in the Mahayana tradition, is unchanging. So what really changed? And uh, it's a little bit easier in some extent in the earlier tradition. There's the description of, a, of this change of lineage is merely a cutting off of the stream of uh, obscurations. And there's really no statement of, uh, of what emerges there's just a blowing out of the candle, so to speak. Uh, but for some reason, uh, Carl does not uh, give this sort of preface to this issue, but instead dives into this um, uh, discussion of how there's this dual situation where, um, on the one hand, there's the emergence of a fully blown Buddha, and on the other hand, there is no change of state because the Buddha never changed state and the sentient being was an illusion from day one and never really had true existence and so there's this this uh, experience of change of state from the point of view of a deluded sentient being but from the point of view of an enlightened Buddha there really was no change that happened um, it's a little bit slippery because there's constantly at the same time of saying that from the point of view of a Buddha there is no change of state that occurred. At the same time there is very much a recognition that a, a Buddha has um, blossomed or emerged. And so how do we uh, deal with this contradictory situation? So in the middle of the, let's see, as for the Sanskrit term, Ashraya Parivriti, there are a great number of Buddhist scriptures from the Pali Canon up through the Tantras in which this term is used with reference to a variety of different states or processes. For some of these, the term transformation, mostly used in translations, may be appropriate, but as far as the Dharmadhatu, natural purity, Buddha nature, or the luminous nature in the mind are concerned, the whole point of this notion of change of state is that there is absolutely no transformation of anything into anything else. Um, the whole point of this notion of change of state is there is absolutely no change. Rather, the revelation of mind's primordially pure nature, from which from the perspective of the path appears as fruitional enlightenment, only manifests as a change from the perspective of deluded mind. Mind seeming to be obscured before and then unobscured later. But this does not refer to any change in nature, any real change, just as the sun, first being covered by clouds and then being free from clouds, will not be called a transformation of the clouds into the sun, or even any transformation of the sun itself. It's solely from the perspective of those who watch the sun, the sun 
and he left out from the perspective of the ground or the earth that a state seems to have changed being with and without clouds respectively and uh, as we know from space travel once you go above the cloud cover there there's uh, no obscuration of the sun right so it's sort of like looking looking back down from uh, William Shatner Captain Kirk looking back down from his blue Orion spaceship to the uh, earth and seeing this cloud cover but realizing that it was just a an illusion caused by a limited perspective of being trapped on the earth inside that cloud cover anyway um, on the next page on the top uh, he in a quote from uh, Stiramati's commentary on some rude verse of Maitreya's he, he uh, quotes that Oh, actually, from the bottom of page 53, purity is said to mean having the nature of being afflicted before, and then the stains having become non-existent later, through having cultivated the path, but before referring to the time of an ordinary being, and later to the time of full Buddhahood. But the Dharmakaya of a Buddha is held to be of the nature of suchness, emptiness. Emptiness as the nature of being empty and luminous. I'm sorry, naturally luminous, even at the time of ordinary beings. Also later, at the time of full Buddhahood, it has the nature of being empty and naturally luminous. And the, the it there is a little bit confusing. Um, I'm going to take that it as referring to the nature of suchness. Therefore, in its natural purity, there is no difference between before and after. And at the bottom of this page, after the quote, we see in the following, the text mainly speaks about the foundation of this change of state. And uh, when he says this text, he's referring to, if you go up before that last quote of, uh, on page 54, that the quote is, as for apprehending its nature, it is stainless suchness in the sense of adventitious stains, not appearing and suchness appearing another presentation of the non-change of state. And this is from a text called the Dharma, Dharmata Vibhanga, the discrimination of uh, dharmas and dharmata, or phenomena and uh, real being, which is one of the five texts of Maitreya. And uh, we have a commentary on that text in this book by the third Karma Paranjum Dorje. So we'll come to that text pretty soon. But he's saying at the bottom of the page in the following, the text, i.e. the Dharma Dharmatavabhanga, mainly speaks about the foundation of this change of state, which is non-conceptual wisdom. In terms of the path, bodhisattvas cultivate and engage in this wisdom through two things, relinquishing the four progressively more subtle mistaken conceptions about factors to be relinquished, the remedies, suchness, and realization. Did anyone track track down what the uh, four progressively more subtle mistaken conceptions are? I might have at the time, but I've forgotten. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's it's funny if you look at the note, he doesn't give them. He just says they're. Uh, something obscure about they're found in some 
some sutra. Uh, and, and it's a little bit frustrating. Let's see. Is he talking about the uh, pride in oneself? I don't think so. Those those are called the four afflictions, and we'll come to those. But uh, uh, I'm going to have to find it to to so that we're all satisfied that I have the correct four. Because there's lots of these lists, obviously. But it's basically a progression of uh, of the um, dispelling the illusions related to apprehender and apprehended. And um, it's from the point of view of, I believe that uh, there's two versions of that which makes four, and one is from the version of the subject, the point of view of the subject, and is the other is from the point of view of the object, and I'm a little uh, vague on that, so I'm going to make myself a note here in space and I'll try to follow up on that one. But it's funny, it's like mentioned as like the most important thing. And then it's like really hard to track it down, any description of this. But, okay, so the four uh, misconceptions. Okay, and then B, so the second, the first thing we do is we relinquish misconceptions. And the second thing we do is that understanding that by virtue of being ignorant about suchness, the delusive appearance of actually non-existent false imagination and duality out of the Ali consciousness prevents the appearance of the nature of phenomena that the latter, latter appears once the former ceases to appear. Oh, there's three of these things. The Bodhisattvas cultivate and engage in this wisdom through these three things. Okay, so... They're all about these four stages. The third one being cultivating the above mentioned four yogic practices. I mean, he's so obscure in this introduction. He's quoting lines from the Dharma Dharma Java Bhanga that he hasn't provided. <laughs> so we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, in other words, since he didn't make it very clear. But I'm going to skip ahead, and on page 56, uh, he says, the first full paragraph, or the only paragraph, he says, all of this underlines that there is no change of state in nature. And this is, so those of you on digital versions, it's after a quote by the third karmapa. A long quote by the third karmapa, and it begins all of this underlines that there is no change of state in nature or substance, but only a revelation of the way things actually have always been once the delusion of what is projected onto this is seen through. Also, non-conceptual wisdom is both the underlying basis and the result of this change of state is clearly described in terms of the dynamics of an enlightened mind and not a sheer emptiness or an inert state. Now, this is the Yogacara point of view that not only uh, points out the emptiness of uh, impermanent phenomena, but also points out the reality of the enlightened state of Buddhahood. Thus, as far as the notion of change of state refers to this process 
of uncovering mind's fundamental nature, even when it is sometimes described in Buddhist texts as if there were a transformation of one thing into another thing, or of something impure, such as the skandhas or mental afflictions, into something pure, such as the skandhas, the pure skandhas or wisdoms. This is just a conventional or expedient way of teaching. So we continue with this uh, dis discussion of how there is no change of state, <laughs> which I don't know that any of us was proposing that there was a change of state, but if you were, you're wrong. There is none. And we're, we'll talk about it for a few more pages. On the next page, 57 of the hard copy, and then uh, there's a nice quote for you digitoids from the 10th chapter of the Mahayana Samgraha, which explains the change of state of the five skandhas as follows. And this was sort of interesting, is how, the, uh, how A turns into B, sort of, but not really. Uh, so how many kinds of masteries is the mastery of the Dharmakaya attained? And brief mastery is attained through five kinds. Through the change of state of the skanda of form, mastery over Buddha realms, pure Buddha realms, kayas, the excellent major and minor marks, infinite voice and indivisible mark on the crown of the head. Sorry, the invisible mark on the crown of the head is attained. So the form skanda transforms into the pure Buddha realms. Two, through the change of state of the skanda feeling, mastery over infinite and vast blissful states without wrongdoing is attained. So we attain uh, uh, stainless bliss. Through the change of state of the skanda of discrimination, mastery over the teachings is attained through all groupings of words, phrases, and groups of letters. So we attain perfect discrimination. We know all the lists. We remember, memorize all the lists perfectly and how they relate. And then fourth, the skanda of concept through the change of state of the skanda of formation, mastery over creation, transformation, gathering retinues, and changing the immaculate dharmas is attained. So uh, formation skanda transforms into the ability to uh, manifest in whatever way one finds helpful in spreading the dharma. And fifth and lastly, through the change of state of the skanda of consciousness, mastery over the mirror-like wisdom, the wisdom of uh, quality, discriminating wisdom, and all accomplishing wisdom is attained. So the four wisdoms, right? One, two, three, four. Four wisdoms. Which wisdom, from those of you who, those of you who know your five Buddha wisdoms, which one is missing? Buddha. The Buddha wisdom, yeah, which is called the Dharmadhatu. Dharmadhatu wisdom, yeah, the wisdom of the space of phenomena. And in the earlier versions of these wisdoms, which come from the Mahayana tradition, as you see, this is in a text, the 10th chapter of the Mahayana Samgraha, the compendium of Mahayana, which is written by a Sangha. And by the way, is uh, translated in, in, along with many commentaries, by Carl Brunholzel in a three-volume set. <laughs> um, so it's quite early on in the Mahayana tradition we have this notion of there being these different uh, types of wisdoms of a Buddha. A Buddhahood. On the next page, let's see. Uh, 
page 58, the first full paragraph. Um, let's see. How about the quote? Those of you in digital world can identify the quote, I think. Thus, infinite masteries are asserted in infinite changes of state by virtue of the inconceivable all accomplishment within the stainless foundation of the Buddhas. Do you have where we are, Harriet? Henrietta, sorry. In some, all these changes of state entail both a negative relinquishment and a positive aspect, attainment, purity, which is what I was referring to earlier mistakenly, these two aspects, thus usually designating both a process and its result, cause and effect. Skipping down towards the end of this paragraph, the conclusion... Uh, about two thirds of the way through is thus there is no change there is no change in terms of the object but in terms of the realizing subject which again happens only from the perspective of the seemingly evolving wisdom of the path but not in terms of the fundamentally unchanging nature of conceptual non conceptual wisdom thus at any given time on the path there's never any change in substance or nature both on the side of what is to be relinquished and the side of what is to be attained, all that happens is a cognitive change or a change in one's outlook on oneself and the world. These two aspects also represent the two reasons why, from their perspective of the path, any change of state is possible at all. First, what seems to change, the adventitious stage, can appear so precisely because it's merely an unreal and deceiving mental construct in the first place. Which is a one of the uh, interesting hallmarks of the Buddhist view of the nature of reality is that what appears is unreal. And only the unreal appears. Uh, so first what seems to change, can, the adventitious stains can appear so precisely because it is merely an unreal and deceiving mental construct in the first place. Totally counterintuitive to uh, our Western way of understanding the world. Secondly, these fictitious mental projections are only superimposed onto and occur nowhere else than within the undeceiving ground of true reality, which is their actual nature just to be revealed. In other words, those sentient beings, um, their delusional seeming reality in the form of the imaginary and other dependent natures has no beginning for individual beings. It can end. So the collective, there's no beginning and no end, but for those that attain Buddhahood, it does end. On the other hand, ultimate reality, the perfect nature, has neither beginning nor end. <clears throat> Along further on this, thus as said above, from a soteriological point of view, um, one of the primary purposes of speaking about the three natures and the other dependent nature in particular, this would be helpful, is to know why they talk endlessly about these three natures, wouldn't it? Is to highlight how mind is deluded about itself and how it can free itself from that self-delusion. The stage for the process of mind freeing itself, the Buddhist path is a stage, a theater, a theatrical stage, is the other dependent nature which starts by taking a thorough look at its own dramas. So here's Carl's uh, interpretation of like how the path works in terms of the three natures, which is helpful. Um, so the other dependent nature, 
this, this stage for the process of mind freeing itself, i.e. the Buddhist path, is, is the other dependent nature, which starts by taking a thorough look at its own dramas. So the other dependent nature looks at itself, i.e. the mind, the complex of the different levels of consciousness. Looks, We look at ourselves. We analyze what's going on in our mind and our life. Um, which and the dramas are the imaginary nature, and thus first we see its own bare structure, i.e., the dependently originating acting of the mind. That uh, all of the confabulations of our world are uh, dependently originated, and therefore have no independent reality of their own. Next, taking a look at that very display of acting itself results in seeing and becoming immersed in its lucid yet empty true nature, which is the perfect nature. So when we're able to, to actually see that display correctly, we see that it's empty and luminous. In other words, the more the complex yet delusively quivering, <laughs> what an interesting description, delusively quivering and fragile structures of the imaginary nature and the other dependent natures collapse. So this is where you freak out or have a meltdown or a nervous breakdown or your world falls apart, but in a good way, right? If, if there can be such a thing. Dark night of the soul? Yes, the dark night of the, of the, of the shoe soul. And uh, the more the immovable and stable fundamental ground shines through, which is not simply yet another structure, but mind's natural state free from all reference points. So as our, our effort to maintain the facade of who we think we are crumbles, the true nature of our being shines through. Thus, uh, it cannot be pinpointed as anything but revealed and experienced as mind's most basic makeup. Those of you that know about makeup, you know that there's like a base, a foundation for the makeup, right? I think that's what he's talking about, the basic makeup, right? Okay. Which is only possible through this very mind not entertaining any grasping at anything, including its own non-grasping. And this is like the progression of the, the slogans, right? You know, self-liberate the ant even the antidote. And then he gives this wonderful example of a ice sculpture of a dog, <laughs> Balto, the dog that saved uh, Juneau, Alaska. Anyway, skipping to the next page, um, there was a nice uh, quote sort of wrapping this up maybe on the next page, 60. Uh, first, there's a quote from the Mahayana Sutra Alamkara that says, Therefore, Buddha is said to be neither existent nor non-existent, just as with the subsiding of heat and iron and blurred vision in the eyes, the mind and wisdom of a Buddha are not said, are not said to be existent or non-existent. Very interesting analogies. The subsiding of heat and iron. The, the heat in the iron is like something real, but the subsiding of it is not something real. And then blurred vision in the eyes as like another thing that's like experience but has no content. And the, the commentary, basha means a commentary. Therefore, Buddha is not said to be existent because its characteristic is the non-existence of persons and phenomena. 
And that is its nature. The nature of Buddhahood. Ah, Eric Strom, thank you. Let's check out the chat. Wow, cool. The four sets of concepts in the Dharma and entering into non-conceptuality, which was referenced earlier. Avikalpa, Pravesha, Dharani, the concepts of duality and defiled concepts relating to skandhas. This is great. Concepts relating to the antidotes, the six paramitas, concepts pertaining to true reality, concepts pertaining to attainment. All right, Eric, you rock. All right, I'll, I'll put the link in. I just found a good translation and introduction to it. It's very short. Where was it from? Uh where did I find it on the, I just by Googling it. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> That's great. I don't know where it's from. It's from the Dharma. Okay. But you'll give the link that you found. Yeah. It yeah. Excellent. No, it's cool. Okay. Dharma Mark. Oh, the translation of that very sutra. Great. From the 84,000 project. Excellent. Cool. Good work, man. No wonder you were so quiet. <laughs> That's great. That's very cool. Thank you. Okay, so Nora's Buddha had said to be non-existent because its characteristic of being suchness actually exists. What a, a revolutionary thing to say. The subs or radical, the subsiding of heat and blurred vision is not existent because its characteristic is the non-existence of heat and blurred vision. Nor is it non-existence because it exists through the characteristic of something else having subsided. So this is like a, a comparison to um, enlightenment um, being the subsiding of defilements, as it's described in the early tradition in particular, where uh, one cuts off all defilements and enlightenment is not described as anything other than the cutting off of defilements and obscurations. Likewise, uh, the subsiding of attachment and ignorance, which resemble heat and blurred vision and the mind and wisdom of Buddhas, is not said to be existent since it consists of their non-existence, nor, however, is it non-existent since the liberations of mind and prajna exist through their respective characteristics of being liberated. So over and over again, we're presented with uh, this, this um, experience that I described I think in the first class, which is of um, holding contradictory um, conceptual structures about the way things are at the same time without them uh, fighting with each other. Okay, so the next section is on 61. It's called Mind's Awakening. And he says it should be noted at the outset, which is why he waited until now to say it, just kidding, that fundamentally both Yogacharas and Madhyamikas agree that all descriptions of Buddhahood, which um, are experienced as a subject, 
person, one who is Buddhahood, or ultimate reality, sort of as an object. And this framework of subject and object may seem very odd, but um, the idea is that there's an experiencer and an experienced. What is experienced? The experiencer is the is either a deluded sentient being or a Buddha, and what is experienced is either delusory appearances or the true nature of reality. So they both, Yogacharas and Madhyamikas, agree that all descriptions of Buddhahood or ultimate reality are by definition incomplete, relative and ultimately false, since it lies, it being um, ultimate reality lies completely beyond the scope of words, thoughts, and dualistic perceptions. Skipping the quote, thus Madhyamikas usually refrain from saying very much, if anything, about this topic. On the other hand, the Yogacara approach is twofold. Just like the Madhyamikas, the Yogacharas point out, as Vasubandhu and Stiramati comment here, that the uncontaminated Dharmadhatu is completely free, so on to page 62, from reference points so that any teachings by the Buddha on the varieties of its profundity resemble painting space with color. However, the Yogacharas also acknowledge the pedagogical need for painting this colorful picture anyway, to be inspired by it and also to inspire others, thus using it as an expedient means to facilitate progressing on the path until what is painted in an illusory manner is nevertheless directly experienced. So skillful means. Madhyamika's skillful means is to undercut all beliefs and views without replacing it with anything else, just to leave you hanging. It's like um, that old joke of, uh, of uh, how do you keep an idiot busy is you put him in a room with a round room and say there's, there's a treasure in the corner. No, there's another joke about having leaving somebody waiting Anyway, um, at the bottom of the page, in general, Buddhahood is described as both excellent relinquishment and realization, thus in terms of the path. And by the way, the, the term for Buddha in Tibetan uh, was created specifically specifically to uh, bring about or to highlight these two aspects of Buddhahood of relinquishment and um, attainment or expansion. So the word in, in Tibetan is song, gye, and the first one, song, means to purify or to relinquish, and gye means to expand or uh, blossom or give, uh, give forth to uh, something further. Thus, in terms of the path, there's not only something to be relinquished, which is all reference points as per the Madhyamikas or the duality of apprehender and apprehended as per the Yogacharas. He gives their two, uh, two different ways of describing what's to be relinquished, but also something to be cultivated, which is the yogic valid perception of meditative perceptions that occur, what he means is that occur in meditative equipoise and subsequent attainment. And yogic valid perception is sort of um, a sort of like a circular term. 
and that yogic valid perception is a uh, is one of the four kinds of valid cognition valid meaning direct and unmistaken direct meaning non-conceptual unmistaken meaning not confused about subject and object and yogic direct means seeing means that valid cognition that sees the true nature and it occurs in meditative equipoise where we see the true nature of reality as emptiness and in what's called subsequent attainment is the realization that occurs when we open our eyes from subsequent from meditative absorption or well when we come out of it we're not supposed to close our eyes in meditation right but uh, when we come out of our samadhi and again uh, experience appearances, mere appearance dependent arisings, and we see them truly f for what they are as mere uh, appearances. Anyway, um, what is to be cultivated is that true uh, perception, which eventually results in the culmination of the non-dual, non-conceptual wisdom of a Buddha. And it's precisely because this non-conceptual wisdom or Dharma Dhatu Buddha nature is the fundamental ground for all activities on the Buddha's path towards its rediscovery that the sutras, tantras, and yogacharas describe it and not only in purely negative terms. So the explanation for why yogacharas describe uh, reality, the true nature of reality, and its realization in positive terms. Uh, dropping down to the bottom of the page, let's see this this chapter uh, paragraph. Just just want to point out. There is a presentation that has two, that has a number one, and then it has a number two in this paragraph. The number two part, it says, the nature of Buddhahood is the attainment of excellent relinquishment, which we just went through being immaculate in terms of being free from all obscurations, and the attainment of excellent wisdom. The latter is called knowledge of all aspects. And this is a technical term that you may fall upon here and there. And so he gives an explanation of it, which I thought was helpful. This is called the knowledge of all aspects, the uh, attainment of excellent wisdom, by virtue of unmistakably knowing all phenomena to be, to have the four marks, the permanent suffering, empty identity, listness, just as they are, the knowledge of all aspects. It is omniscient by virtue of knowing all phenomena, such as skandhas and dhatus, without exception. So uh, this is also in that these two sentences is also included the two aspects of omniscience is knowing the true nature of phenomena, their their empty empty luminous nature, and secondly by knowing the, their manner of appearing, the manner of uh, the variety of appearances of relative or mere appearances. Skipping to the next page. Oh, page 65, sorry. There's a quote from...
from, geez, what are we quoting from? I think it's the uh, Mahayana Sutra Alamkara, the ornament to the Mahayana Sutras by Maitreya. Whatever the seeds, so on 65, this is verse uh, 9.12, so it's chapter 9, verse 12, says, whatever the seeds of the afflictive and cognitive obscurations ever present since primordial time, wherever, sorry, wherever they are destroyed through all kinds of very extensive relinquishments, Buddhahood is attained as the change of state endowed with the supreme qualities of the pure dharmas, which is obtained through the path of utterly pure wisdom that is non-conceptual and very vast in scope. And so when we read this, this term, change of state, we should remember the very long presentation that Carl just gave of that change of state as being not a change of state. And therefore one asks, why do they still call it that? Okay, uh, let's see. This describes the removal of the antagonistic factors. It's a battleground out there of Buddhahood and the remedies through which it is attained, the relinquishment of the latent tendencies of the two obscurations. Two obscurations are the obscurations of uh, cognitive type, which is believing things to be real, and of the uh, emotional type, believing uh, that things are personally directed or about us in one way or another. These are the two obscurations. The relinquishment of the latent tendencies of the two obscurations being very extensive refers to the path of supermundane wisdom from the first to the tenth Bhumi. All kinds, and he's, he's commenting on this stanza, so in the second line of the stanza, are destroyed through all kinds a very extensive relinquishment. So all kinds means that the wisdoms on each one of the Bhumis have nine degrees in terms of lesser, medium, and great. So it's the description of the path of the Bodhisattva. Each of the nine, um, on each one of the Bhumis is nine degrees. He gives three degrees, but there's each degree has lesser, medium, and great. So there's the lesser of the lesser and so forth, making nine, whatever refers to someone's mind in which the two obscurations have been purified to apply in these remedial wisdoms, which is the meaning of attaining the change of state. Once the two obscurations are relinquished in this way, the change of state consists of the attainment of the five dharmas, the five dharmas in this case being the four wisdoms and the pure dharmadhatu, <clears throat> together making the five Buddha wisdoms that we know about from the Vajrayana tradition as well as the unique qualities of a Buddha, such as the Ten Powers and the eight, uh, eight Fearlessnesses and so on, all of which are supreme, since Travak and Pratyeka Buddhas do not possess these. The path of super-mundane wisdom is twofold, utterly pure non-conceptual wisdom and the pure mundane wisdom of subsequent attainment. So pure non-conceptual wisdom occurs in meditative equipoise and then the pure mundane wisdom of subsequent attainment whose scope consists of all knowable objects. Utterly pure non-conceptual wisdom sees all phenomena to be empty, just like space. That's the meditative, the understanding that occurs in meditative equipoise. And then the pure mundane wisdom of subsequent attainment sees all entities of worldly realms in the three times as illusions and mirages. So, 
this further description of the path, skipping ahead. Um, okay, so the last of the three sections in tonight's uh, part of the introduction starts on page 71, and it's the header for digital types. It's minds, three enlightened bodies, and four wisdom eyes. So here he goes through a presentation of the three kayas and the four wisdoms. So we'll read a couple of a few little sections of this. The nature and functions of Buddhahood is the realization of ultimate reality described as the four wisdoms, which represent the cognitive processes within the all-encompassing Dharmadhatu that result in the two rupakayas, the form kaya, samboga, and uh, nirmana kaya, performing enlightened activity within the dharmakaya, not moving from the dharmakaya. This description once again clearly highlights the fact that Buddhahood is not an inert, sorry, an inactive or inert state. These processes are presented in the classical Yogacara format of a change of state in terms of the eight consciousnesses on the one side and the four wisdoms and the three kayas on the other side. There's a chart at the back of the book you can stare at that uh, presents these these changes. Let's see, just briefly, let's take a peek at it. Being as it appears on page number... 373, perhaps? Thank you very much. 373, the change of state of the eight consciousnesses into the four or five wisdoms and the three or four kayas. There's a lot of options. You can get three kayas or four kayas to go or to stay, and then four or five wisdoms. And there's there's the change of state of these according to Yogacara, where you have the eight consciousnesses changing. There's the wisdom and the kaya, and then the third karma has a slightly different take on things. And so briefly, consciousness one through five, the sense consciousnesses in the Yogacara version transform into the all-accomplishing wisdom, which is the wisdom of activity, and that's the uh, essence of the Nirmanakaya. The mental consciousness and the afflicted mind uh, transform into the Samogakaya, with the former transforming into discriminating wisdom and the latter into the wisdom of equality. And then the, um, and, and that occurs on the eighth Bhumi. You see on the far right is like when this happens. The earlier change happens on the first Bhumi. And then the last uh, one is the Alia consciousness transforms into the mirror-like wisdom, which is the fundamental wisdom. And uh, that is the Dharmakaya and that happens on the 10th, actually after the 10th Bhumi. And let's see, the third Karmapa does, uh, he adds a little more detail. So he splits the sixth consciousness into these two aspects of non-conceptual mental consciousness and conceptual. And I think we talked about this last week, that uh, in the, in the pr process of cognition of a sense perception, there's the sense cognition itself, which is non-conceptual, and then that gets transferred um, by email to the sixth consciousness, which initially experiences it non-conceptually, and then subsequent thought moments are conceptual engagement with that 
sense experience. And then he has, in the, the seventh consciousness, he divides into the immediate mind and the afflicted mind. And uh, it, that's very helpful to see that the immediate mind is an aspect of the seventh consciousness. And it's, it's going to be a lot easier to see what the significance of that is when we get to his text and we see how he describes the, the immediate mind and how he uses it. But it seems to be basically, if I can take a wild shot at it, it seems to be his way of referring to the consciousness of the moment. So, you know, like, what is it that is thinking the thoughts or listening to the sound and so forth? That's the a part of the seventh consciousness that's happening every moment. And so it's immediate. It's uh, um, moment by moment. And then he adds underneath... Uh, the chart, he goes outside the box, because he's a karmapa, he can do that, and he has uh, the dharmadhatu wisdom, the fifth wisdom, and the fourth kaya, of the swabhavaka kaya. And let's see, skipping back to page 71, so we had these uh, change of state in terms of the eight consciousness on the one side and the four wisdoms and three kayas on the other side, as well as the bhumis, the stage of the path. As explained before, this does not mean any actual transformation of the former into latter, such as miraculously transforming something really bad into something excellent. Still, conventionally speaking, it is thought that upon being purified, or realized to be adventitious, the alia consciousness manifests as mirror-like wisdom. The afflicted mind as the wisdom of quality, the mental consciousness of discriminating wisdom of five sense consciousness is all accomplished in wisdom. Most fundamentally, once the emptiness in these consciousnesses has become pure, which is a really weird thing to say, he's saying that the emptinesses were not pure before, and it's sort of hard for emptiness to not be pure, but we'll give we'll give him that one. The Dharmadhatu is completely pure at that point. In other words, these changes of state take place within the fundamental space of Dharmadhatu, while always being inseparable from it. And um, so you'll see that <coughs> the um, if we go back to that chart in 373, In the Yogacara version, the first five consciousnesses are transformed in the first Bhumi. And this chart, the way he's put it together, is said, says that the sixth and seventh consciousness don't transform until the eighth Bhumi. So remember that, because that will come up again as a fine point of dispute as to where those consciousnesses are transformed. Because usually they're said to be transformed also at the first Bhumi. But anyway, the Aliyah Vijnana is not transformed or sort of dissolved until the attainment of complete Buddhahood. And let's see. Okay, a little bit further on the Kaya. So on the top of page 74. 
And for a digital version, it's like one, it's the fourth page in on the digital, uh, in this section. In this section, sorry, called Minds, Three Enlightened Bodies. Four pages in. Uh, actually, it starts in the bottom of page 73, the paragraph. Siramati comments that nature refers to the Dharmakaya, meaning that the nature of Buddhahood as such is the pure Dharmadhatu. And on the next page, when the stains of apprehender and apprehended that exist in the Ali consciousness have been relinquished, and thus the Dharmadhatu has become Dharma, uh, sorry, mirror-like wisdom. This is called Dharmakaya. So the uh, Ali Vijnana becomes the Dharmakaya. Sambhogakaya refers to the afflicted mind having changed state and thus having become the wisdom of equality, as well as the mental consciousness having changed state and thus having become discriminating wisdom. It's called enjoyment body, it being the Sambhogakaya, and the translation of Sambhogakaya is enjoyment body, or body of bliss, because it provides the great enjoyment of the Dharma for bodhisattvas who have entered the Bhumis. The Nair, Nair Manakaya, Nair, Nair, not the Nair, but the Nair, that uh, he's using some sort of antiquated terminology, he's using the terminology as it's used in the authors, by the authors he's quoting. Represents the change of state of the five sense consciousnesses and all accomplishing uh, into all accomplishing wisdom. It demonstrates the twelve deeds of a Buddha and brings sentient beings to maturity. Thus the Tathagasas are not limited to a single Kaya, but there's a division into three, with the Dharma Kaya being the foundation or support of the other two. And then now uh, let's see. Um, on page 75, the next page, there's a paragraph that begins, as mentioned before, the four wisdoms are not four different entities or static qualities of one, of one entity, but just stand for the processes that represent the main functional activities of the single non-conceptual wisdom of a Buddha, which cooperate with and supplement each other. And here we go, Carl will give us the television analogy. Mirror-like wisdom is like an all-encompassing TV screen that simply reflects what's there, thus providing the raw data to be processed and used. Discriminating wisdom means to intently look at the screen and see all its distinct data without getting confused or mixing them up. The wisdom of equality refers to being empathic, but lacking any kind of judgment about the data seen on the screen, as well as making no difference between seer and seeing duality. All accomplishing wisdom represents the resultant impulse to altruistically act upon what is seen. Thus, non-conceptual Buddha wisdom reflects all sentient beings and phenomena within a Buddha's field of activity without any bias and personal concern, which is the mirror-like wisdom. At the same time, this non-conceptual wisdom perceives and discerns all these beings and phenomena in every minute detail, just as they are with perfectly clear discernment and without any personal projections or superimpositions result of discriminating wisdom. Non-conceptual wisdom is also completely non-dual, which not only refers to its perceptual structure, no subject-object duality, but also to its effective structure, 
It neither takes samsara as something bad to be avoided, nor nirvana as something good to dwell in. It lacks any attachment and aversion to embody to anybody or anything, and instead sees the Buddha nature of all beings, which is not different in essence from a Buddha's very own state that's naturally being loving and compassionate toward all those who do not see this wisdom, which is the wisdom of equality. By virtue of all these features, non-conceptual wisdom is the most efficient mode of operation possible. <laughs> non-conceptual wisdom is efficient, which underlies everything that, from the perspective of those to be benefited, appears as a Buddhist helpful activity in an effortless, unpremeditated, and uninterrupted way, which is the all-accomplishing wisdom. And I think we'll... Uh, we'll uh, let's see... I think he says it a few more times in, in different ways, but I think that's pretty much it. Oh, actually, one more scheme. He gives a, a description of the progression on the path in terms of the three natures, starting at the bottom of page 76. And maybe on the digital version you can find it, because it follows a quote that goes like this. Precisely what does not exist is the supreme existent. <laughs> Just to be really... Outrageous, right? Non-observation in every respect is held to be the supreme observing. Imagine like a little kid saying that to the teacher in class, you know. Non-observation is supreme observing. Why aren't you paying attention? <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, on the first Bhumi, Bodhisattvas realized that the imaginary nature, apprehender and apprehended, there's got to be a, like a movie, a thriller, called the apprehender and the apprehended does not exist. The very fact of it's non-existent is designated as the supreme existent because the perfect nature, the freedom from apprehender and apprehended exists. On this Bhumi, Bodhisattvas neither observe nor see the imaginary nature nor any conceptions of me and mine nor any conceptions of phenomena. This is called the supreme observing. Because they see the perfect nature, the freedom from apprehender and apprehended. The supreme meditation is held to be not seeing any meditation, sort of like my meditation. The supreme attainment is held to be not seeing any attainment, sort of like my attainment. Isn't this a little like the Diamond Sutra? It is, yeah. Which is so annoying. Attainment I mean, is non-attainment. <laughs> During the second up through the tenth Bhumis, Bodhisattvas relinquished all conceptions of apprehender, apprehended me and mine, which is the dependent nature. The very meditation in which neither a meditator nor something to meditate on are seen is called the supreme meditation because they familiarize themselves with the characteristic that there is nothing to be observed and the time of Buddha had not seen the Samukha and Nirmanaka or the qualities such as the powers and fearlessness is called the supreme attainment because the supreme attainment consists of the Dharmakaya, the supreme of all dharmas, thus to familiarize themselves with the characteristic of there being nothing to be observed is the means to become a Buddha. Period. Should be. Okay, so we have a little time to explore this fun 
little texts by uh, Vasubandhu. See if we can make heads or tails of this. See if I can load it up on my screen here. Do I have it? Not yet. Okay. Okay. The Trimshika by Vasubandhu. So, uh, Vasubandhu wrote a number of very famous books. He wrote the Abhidharma Kosha, which is the treasury of higher dharma, which is a, 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 an amazing compilation of the dharma. It's usually called, uh, 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 let's see, it's treasury of Abhidharma. And when we think of Abhidharma, we usually think of something that talks about the skandhas and the ayatanas and the dhatus and uh, cause and effect, but this book, Abhidharma Kosha, also basically includes everything. <clears throat> it's like their their version of uh, an encyclopedia of Buddhism, and it follows in the footsteps of many other such uh, compilations that occurred by other great scholars in the early tradition of Buddhism, where they lay out all of their views about the universe and the path and the Buddhas and Shravakas and in meditation and the cosmology is in there as well as the skandhas and the ayatanas and the dachas. And then he also wrote a number of Yogacara texts. He wrote uh, this text called the uh, the twenty stanzas, the Vimshika. Uh, so and then the thirty stanzas, catchy name, Trimshika is thirty, and Karika as stanzas. And then he also wrote a text on karma, and he wrote a text on the five skandhas. And we actually did a course on his text on the five skandhas with Stiramati's commentary a number of years ago called, uh, the book is The Inner Science of Buddhism, something like that. And the course was on the essence of, called The Essence of Abhidharma. And then he also wrote a text called the Triswabhava, Nirdesha, tree meaning three, ner, uh, swabhava meaning nature, so the three natures, and uh, uh, tree, swabhava, nirdesha is a teaching or an explanation. And that text is very famous, uh, became very famous in particular in China, and there was a famous commentary by a famous Chinese Buddhist scholar called the Chenwei Shi Lun. And I don't know how to pronounce Sanskrit, so I probably massacred that. But you may come across these things. The 20 verses was uh, sort of uh, um, an interchange with other Buddhists about the main issues in the uh, Yogacara, whereas the 30 verses is uh, Vasubandhu's presentation of the, the core aspects of Yogacara. So, uh, Carl is quoting from it a lot, as well as Rongjong Dorje will. So I thought it'd be really cool to see, just to go through the root text as itself, sort of the root text of the Yogacara tradition. 
in some ways. So the constructs of self and phenomena occur in many different ways in the modulation of consciousness. So modulation is the term that Carl, this is uh, translated by Carl Brunholzel, I should have added that. He didn't have that in the text he gave me. But um, that's what he's using to translate the sort of evolutions or different uh, uh, layers of consciousness. And this evolution or modulation is threefold. And the numbers are the verse numbers. First we have uh, maturation, what is called self-centeredness, and the cognition of objects. So he gives these cryptic terms for the three modulations. The first one is maturation, second one is self-centeredness, and the third is the cognition of objects. So maturation is Alaya Vijnana, the eighth consciousness, self-centeredness is the seventh consciousness, and cognition of objects is the sixth through the first consciousness. Here, maturation is what is called Alaya consciousness, which contains all the seeds. It's cognizance of appropriation, and the abode is indistinct. And uh, in the commentaries, there's like this huge discussion of of um, <clears throat> why the Alia Vijnana is indistinct. And um, let's see if I can understand it and, and remember it. One of those things alone is a stretch, but to do both understand and remember it is a total stretch. It had something to do with um, the fact that the Alia Vishnana does not have um, um, conceptualization of uh, generally and specifically characterized phenomena yet. It's sort of pre-conceptual. I think. Anyway, uh, it is always accompanied by, and he lists what are called the five omnipresent mental factors. And so if you know your Abhidharma, your lists of dharmas, um, there's basically matter, mind, and mental factors. And every moment of mind arises with uh, some uh, a variety of mental factors which range from functional things like uh, attention or here he translates attention as mental engagement and um, also some emotionally toned things such as aggression or desire so the mental factors uh, covers a wide wide range of types of mental experiences uh, but uh, mental uh, factors accompany every, some set of mental factors accompany every moment of what's called the primary or main mind, being one of the um, eight consciousnesses. And so the Ali Vishnana is always accompanied by the first five mental factors, which are called the omnipresent or uh, omnipresent mental factors. So they occur in every moment of mind, these five. There's a contact between the consciousness and its object. There's engagement with it. There's a feeling tone. 
there's a discrimination of the content of of cognition and there's an impulse towards or away from it it's feeling the aliyavishnana's uh, feeling tone is indifference the um the aliyavishnana does not have a uh, it does not come equipped with any of the uh, emotionally toned mental factors of for or against so it is completely indifferent to its objects and neutral about them uh, so it's unobscured by those uh, mental factors of uh, attraction or repulsion the same goes for its contact and so on and uh, so when he says that he means that just like feeling the feeling of uh, the feeling mental factor of the Alevishnana is indifferent, obscured, and neutral, and the other five omnipresent mental factors of the Alevishnana are also indifferent, unobscured, and neutral. It flows like a river stream, and that's the analogy for the Alevishnana is that it's not just one thing, <clears throat> nor can you easily say that it's many things, just like a river. It's hard to say that it's many things um, because it, it has this quality of flowing together. So the Aliyavishnana is this flow of the uh, karmic cause and effect of the activity of the other seven consciousnesses. And, and the Aliyavishnana sort of um, carries all of that within its river banks. It ceases at Arhat Hood, the Aliyavishnana. What operates by resting on it, okay, so that was the first uh, modulation called maturation. Maturation is that, uh, um, is that in the Aliyavishnana, the seeds are sown, so to speak, and, and then uh, give rise to the other consciousnesses from the Aliyavishnana, so the maturation. What operates by resting on it? So the, that consciousness that rests upon the Aliyavishnana is the consciousness called mentation, which is like this generic term for mental activity, mind, minding. It has as its focal object, and uh, which has it as its focal object and whose nature is self-centeredness. My understanding of the it is the Aliyavishnana. What operates by resting on it, the Aliyavishnana, is this consciousness called the mentation, the seventh consciousness, which has it, the Aliyavishnana, as its focal object and whose nature is self-centeredness. So it's focused on the Aliyavishnana. It is always associated with the four afflictions that are obscured and yet neutral. I should have understood how you can be obscured and yet neutral, but I neglected, sorry. The four afflictions are views about a self, or viewing the five skandhas as consisting of a self, ignorance about the self, pride about oneself, or conceit about being a self, and attachment to that self. So those are the four afflictions, basic afflictions, that occur in the afflicted mental consciousness known as the seventh consciousness. 
wherever it arises, so do contact and so on, which were the five on the present mental factors. It ceases in arhats on the supramundane path and during the meditative absorption of cessation. So it's totally gone in a stage of arhatship. Um, on the supramundane path, this indicates that it disappears on the, the the first stage of enlightenment in the early tradition, that would be the, the path of stream entry and the bodhisattva path, it would be the path of seeing. And also there's a, a certain type of meditative practice called absorption, I'm sorry, cessation absorption, which is different than the, the normal scheme of the four absorptions states or jhanas or dhyana states. And there's a separate practice and basically the everything in the mind stops except the Alaya Vishnana. And that was the second modulation. The third modulation is the perception of the six kinds of objects, so the six consciousnesses that each have their own object. And this consciousness is virtuous, non-virtuous, or neither, unlike the other ones. Right? This was neutral. The, the first two were neutral and yet obscured, ignorant, that's it. Ignorant in that it's uh, obscured by these four afflictions and yet it's neutral, it's not like virtuous or non-virtuous. It's associated with the omnipresent mental factors, the five that the Ali Vijnana and the, and the seven of the consciousness were affiliated with, as well as the determining mental factors, which are the next five in the traditional Yogacara scheme of a hundred dharmas or 51 mental factors. And, um, and then it's associated with various other mental factors such as aggression and, and attachment as well as with afflictions and secondary afflictions. Okay, so afflictions and secondary afflictions would be the aggression, the attachment and aggression. And uh, um, I see, not various, but virtuous mental factors, such as compassion, loving kindness, generosity, and so on. And um, with feelings of being threefold. <laughs> Do you have feelings of being threefold? You go to your therapist. <laughs> I, have, I have feelings of being. Is that uh, the, the sense of one? Um liking disliking or or being neutral with the feelings skanda with feelings being threefold that would thank you very much that would thank you so uh the feeling scon the feeling skanda in this case has three options uh let's see the first are contest so the first are are the omnipresent mental factors, contact and so on, that we saw earlier. Uh, where was that? Contact, mental engagement, and so forth. And aspiration, conviction, mindfulness, samadhi, and intelligence are the determining mental factors, the next five. And then he goes into the uh, virtuous and non-virtuous mental factors, confidence, shame, embarrassment, the three types of non-attachment and so on, vigor, suppleness, conscientiousness, and non-violence are the virtuous mental factors. 
And the afflictions are desire, anger, ignorance, pride, views, and doubt, the six root clashes or afflictions. And then there's 22 subsidiary ones, wrath, resentment, concealment, spite, envy, etc., etc., etc. So he goes through like a, just a litany of all these mental factors. And then he ends with uh, sleep examination and analysis. As being secondary afflictions, with two being twofold. There's something about these last uh, mental factors can be either virtuous or non-virtuous, uh, and that's what he means by twofold. But usually, it's four of them can be twofold. Anyway, in the root consciousness, the Aliyah Vijnana, the five consciousnesses of the sense perceptions arise according to conditions, either together or not, just like waves and water. While the mental consciousness always occurs always, except in those without discrimination, which is um, the two kinds of meditative absorption, is um, the cessation absorption and, this, and the absorption of neither perception nor non-perception usually, as well as sleep and fainting. These are all states without mind, without the mental consciousness, the sixth consciousness. This modulation of consciousness is conception, this modulation being the third modulation. What is conceived by it does not exist, and therefore everything is mere cognizance. So all of the um, all of the so-called objects of the six consciousnesses are mere concepts, and so there is nothing but cognizance. Here's your that's your presentation of mind only which leads us to the homework assignment. Consciousness is what contains all seeds. Its modulations occur in such and such ways by virtue of mutual influence through which such and such conceptions arise. This is a description of sort of the overall process of how the eight uh, arise and fall and interact with each other due to the latent tendencies of karma together with the latent tendencies of the twofold clinging to the self of persons and phenomena. These produce future maturations, and once uh, previous maturations are exhausted, they produce future maturations, other ones. Whatever entity is conceived by whatever conception is the imaginary nature, which is unfindable, because it doesn't exist. The dependent nature, on the other hand, is the concept the conceptual, the conceptual process that arises from conditions. That's the dependent nature. The perfect nature is its dependent nature's perpetual freedom from the imaginary nature. Therefore, it is said to be neither other nor not other than the dependent, because it's the nature of it, just like impermanence and such. When the one is not seen, the other is not seen. So the perfect nature is the nature of the dependent nature. So you can't say that it's other than the dependent nature, nor um, not other. With the three kinds of lack of nature, 
of the three kinds of nature in mind. So the three kinds of lack of nature are the lack of nature of the imaginary lacks characteristics because it's purely conception. So there's no real characteristics in the sense of specifically characterized phenomena. And then dependent nature lacks um, the imaginary nature. I'm sorry, the dependent nature lacks any independent nature because it's completely dependently arisen, so it's always dependent on other things, one thing dependent on another. And the third one, the perfect nature, is the absence of the imaginary and the dependent. So the three kinds of lack of nature, of the three kinds of nature in mind, it was taught that all phenomena are lacking in nature. <laughs> the first one lacks the nature, so there's the imaginary in terms of characteristics. The next lacks existence on its own, since it's dependent on other, and the last is the lack of nature as such. The last is the ultimate of phenomena, and therefore it is suchness, because it is just such at all times, always, and before and after. Just this is the very being of mere cognizance, for as long as consciousness does not dwell in mere cognizance, this very being, the after effects of the twofold grasping of the self of persons and phenomena will not come to a halt. As long as consciousness does not dwell in mere cognizance, very being, as long as we don't realize that everything is mere cognizance. But even thinking this is mere cognizance misses the point because you have, you're still stuck in a, in a dualistic conceptual framework is a case in point because it involves focusing, focusing on the idea that this is cognizance. With anything placed before the mind, there's no dwelling in merely that. Uh, this is, I think, a way of saying that you don't realize that it's mere cognizance. When, when consciousness as such does not observe any focal object, it rests in the very being of mere consciousness. For if there is nothing apprehended, there is no apprehender. So this is the transformation. Then it is non-mind and non-perception, not seven and not the one through six. It is super-mundane wisdom. This is the fundamental change by virtue of having relinquished the twofold impregnations of negative tendencies of uh, the self of persons and phenomena. It is the uncontaminated space or datu that is inconceivable, uh, virtuous, stable, and blissful. The fruition kaya, vimukti kaya, that is called the dharmakaya of the great sage. Very okay. good question, if I can. Yes, sir. Um, just to go back to your screen share, if it's inconceivable, how can we attribute qualities to it? Virtuous, stable, luminous, etc. Mm. Um, because that's uh, so conceivable. It is the uncontaminated doctor that is inconceivable, virtuous, and stable. It is, um, it is inconceivable in the sense that we cannot understand it. it it's uh, Using conceptual mind. 
using conceptual frameworks, using conceptual mind. And say it's virtuous then. It, it, uh, it has no reference. Co- concept and conceptuality means that one thing points to another. So like um, with a baguette, we can point at the moon and the moon is the referent. Uh, so with a word, we can point to a thing, but um, there's, there's, no, uh, there's no framework for in the, uh, in the perfectly uh, perfect nature for any uh, conceptual way of understanding it. There's no, um, because it's empty, there is no reference. When we, when we talk, when we say the word, the perfected nature, it doesn't refer to something. And therefore, it's the, the uh, supreme of all aspects, as we saw earlier in the text, in the introduction, and is the essence of Buddhahood. And uh, so the, the fact that it's virtuous does not mean that it, that it possesses conceptuality. Um, when, when you say, uh, how can it be virtuous? I think you're saying virtue is uh, a conceptual construct that we have of one thing being good and one thing being bad. But its inherent nature is compassionate activity for the benefit of beings. And um, it does that without any sense of there being compassionate activity and without there being beings. Okay, thank you. <laughs> In other words, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to pin down. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think it's the uh, inconceivable <laughs> contradiction. Sorry, Cynthia. No, that's okay. Sorry. I, I was just going to say that essentially Neil's question is the ultimate question that people are, are, or that all of these different schools are always struggling with in terms of, you know, how can you talk about something that's, you know, how to, do, how to just talk about Buddha nature at all and this whole notion of qualities when you're talking about emptiness and, you know, I mean, I think he's really just talking about the heart of the matter there. That's that's yeah, sort of an ongoing challenge or sometimes conflict. Talking of challenge, let's let's see if we can spend a few minutes and go over a few minutes and see um, were were people able to uh, spend some time? Did people remember the challenge of like trying to experience mere cognizance? And what what is that like? And how do you do it? Any, anyone have any any concepts or thoughts about that? Brock, the Rock, from Idaho or Montana or Utah. You have to unmute yourself, sir. One of those flyover states. There you go. Uh, I uh, have been doing this painting that is somewhat of a Buddha, but it's also the landscape. And uh, so I wanted it to show a little bit of what is and what isn't. And uh, I, I think it, uh, to a, it maybe got more. I That's didn't want cool. to show that can, much. 
Can people I see Brock's screen? Yeah. Do you, you know put, your, put it on speaker and then it works. Put it on speaker? No, no, no. If, you, if everybody on else the view. Puts, puts their oh, view on speaker, yeah. then yeah. yeah. Or you can go over to Brock and pin him. Pin him to that easel. And there you see his dream. So what's happening in this dream? Well, it's just, it. I really wanted to put a Buddha in a landscape, but not have it real. I wanted kind of that emptiness uh, that you were just talking about, it be there, but not it there. So it's and sort of dreamlike. Actually, it maybe got more real than I really wanted to, but I wanted it to be there too. So, so really, when you get back away from it, Yes. It disappears into the landscape. Yeah, yeah. Very well camouflaged. That Buddha is very, very well camouflaged. Nice. That's that's kind of the way I approached what you were, I thought you were talking about. Is there anything behind the, like, look behind the easel. Is there really a Buddha there? (laughs) No. That's great. That's great. Thank you very much. Brock, are, <laughs> Brock, are you familiar with the painter Hundertwasser? I'm not. The Austrian painter. You could look him up. He does things like this. Or he oh, did. Would you spell that for me? Hundertwasser. Uh, H-U-N-D-E-R-T. Hold it one more time. Hundert. H-U-N-D-E-R-T. Can you put it in the chat for him? Yeah, Wasser, Hundert Wasser. And, uh, he was a student of Klimt. Ah, well, I'm certainly sure familiar with him. Anyone else? Thank Mayor, you. Mayor Cognizance? Yeah, Thank so... You. Christopher? Last time, last time, I had the experience. Yeah, you, you described your experience of being in a dream and waking up in the dream. Yeah, and this time... <laughs> <laughs> kind of, but this time it was more analytical, and it ended up being somewhat of a death meditation. So uh, it was skeletons, like, like decomposing skeletons, sort of thing. That I am everything and nothing at the same time. So that kind of everything and nothing, because everything is mine, and mind is nothing, and so. And, uh, yeah, so just going through that, you know, it's, it was seeing all the workings of the mind, the the conceptual and the referent, you know, the objects, and then. That is a very analytical dream. experience of it disappearing. It's just, I went through Uh, it analytically and I didn't. Sometimes I'll get to that point, and all of a sudden it all just drops. Sometimes it didn't drop, but still uh, it was very valuable the going through it. I guess it's real, and it, it didn't disappear. Cool, Emily. Your sound. There's something going on with your sound. You sound like you're from another planet. Is that better? A little. Okay. <laughs> like a lot it's hold on is that better is that working yeah yeah that's great okay okay um so usually let me think i described this 
usually I feel like I'm taking in the raw data from the senses and observing in myself that my mind is bringing those together into some form of consciousness and in meditation, usually I'm trying to kind of observe that process. And so this week I was having these moments of doing that in reverse. Um, so rather than thinking of the senses as the cause and then kind of some sort of consciousness, putting those together as a result, this week I was that flipped that on its head and was sort of meditating upon the con the consciousness being the cause and the sensory experiences kind of being the result of a pre-existing consciousness that was there even before the sense senses were there. And so that was quite a. Yeah, shift. that's a, that's a shift. That's a big turnaround usually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, you thought about it and it appeared. Yeah. Almost. So, yeah. 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 Or I, I was thinking about a drawing you did for us several semesters ago of like, there's the eighth consciousness and then it went to the seventh to the sixth. And then I think the five senses sort of. Expand out. Yeah. Yeah. And so that sort of came to mind for me and I was trying to experience my senses as though the seventh and sixth were there first, and then the senses mm -hmm. were sort of this product of those rather than the other way around. And when you say the senses, you mean the objects as well as the... Yes, the, yeah. The sense perceivers. Cool. Yeah. Neat. Thanks. Anyone else? Mary Beth. Well, I don't know if this was right, <laughs> but... I don't think but there's any wrong. It was sort of confounding. And so I felt like, well, if it's confounding, then it's right. <laughs> but, That's good for a start. And it was sort of like what Emily said, but I was just kind of thinking, well, what if everything outside of me is actually thinking me? That's great. So. That's great. Everybody get that? I, I did I did something similar in that normally we th we the sort of conventional uh, way of thinking about everything is mind is that there's nothing out there and it's all in my mind and instead we could think that there's nothing in my mind but everything outside of me is mind. if that makes any sense. Anyone else? Thank you, Mary Beth. That was great. Uh, Cynthia? Um, well, in some ways, a little bit similar. I, I tend to use kind of metaphoric things, sort of like, you know, ocean or something like that. So it's sort of like uh, being like swimming in the ocean or something like that. So it's a little bit like what you're describing that, you know, everything outside is, is what you were describing is, is sort of mine. It's sort of like creating this environment you know like they talk about when you're in the water when you're a fish you don't know there's water yeah um and the bird doesn't know there's air and we don't know you know we don't think about air just because we live in it so i kind of just try to bring that a little bit to mind as i'm walking around and you know so that you kind of realize you're steeped in this environment that is um not separate from you essentially mm. yeah uh, the other thing is that i also sometimes flip it and I just if I need to kind of shake my mind up is to sort of flip it and try to imagine if everything was matter. Just right. confound a bit again. 
Well, that's the way normal people think. Is that we think that all there is is matter and there's no mind. Right. But what I do is, if, if if I feel like I'm getting too conceptual in the in the trying to do cognizance only, then I sort of try to flip it and say, okay, if I try to be, can think of it as being, because most people think there's, I mean, some people are completely materialistic and think it's matter and only matter, including brain and all that. But some people tend to separate matter and mind. I think that's a pretty ordinary thing too. So what I was saying is that if you try to even flip it so that you don't think there's mind, that even mind, you know, just just try to go to the non-dual aspect. Whether you think of it as mind or matter doesn't really matter. The idea is just stop thinking of them as separate. Nice. Mm-hmm. Nice. Anyway. Thanks. Anyone else? Uh, Lori and then uh, Alan. I, I was doing it like trying to see through and hear through the senses, like beyond them somehow. And what it did, it was it was kind of a mixture of feeling really stoned, and then also <laughs> it would it would make all the perceptions sharper. Like the colors would get more vivid, and the sounds would get more articulate. Oh, it's somehow. so green! Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or all these different greens. And, like, yeah. <laughs> That's great. I was hoping somebody would use that analogy. <laughs> That's cool. Thank you. I like that sort of go through the senses. Yeah. Like uh, uh, pro- projects out into them. Beyond them, sort of them. Yeah. yeah. Beyond them, beyond them. Yeah. Like there's something, uh, some some consciousness projecting their that type of sense experience towards you almost. I guess, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Alan. Are you speaking? You're muted. It's hard to say, but you're still you're muted, muted, so you're going to have to repeat yeah, yeah. everything. So I, every once in a while I look out and have a flash that boy this is I'm, I'm doing all this i mean look look at what i'm doing isn't, isn't this this is amazing everything became more interesting mm. you know it's just uh i'm coming up with all this stuff <laughs> it's the, impl- and, you know, the, the feeling of judgment completely evaporated but i did have moments of thinking i wish someone could send a message to my alia consciousness so it could come up with stuff that was kind of more agreeable, like why do I have to have imagine my neighbor banging uh, on the wall at, at at midnight? You know, I could. <laughs> yeah, if, you, if it's all imagination, why yeah. couldn't it be something good? <laughs> but I but I have a basic question of <clears throat> you know how this theory can account for unexpected uh, unexpected perceptions. perceptions. Yeah. Like things you've never experienced before. How can, how can those come about if you've never experienced? Cause there's this idea that mind only means we're like re, re, uh, digesting, rehashing, um, things that have happened in the past over and over. But even that version, there must've been a first time. Well, there's, well, there's something that, uh, mentioned in talking about, he said something about the alaya seeds going back to time immemorial. So it's not just the seeds of events that we've experienced in our lifetime, <clears throat> but it's, you know, going back to time immemorial. 
but still, how can you come up with, you know, like a 21st century invention that you've never seen before? And, and then he mentioned, he mentioned the word collage, you know, putting together bits and pieces of experiences and which appear as something new, but it just fragment like, you know, you see a mosaic and you've never seen this mosaic before. But all, if you look at all the pieces of the mosaic, you can somehow um, acknowledge that they've been experienced somehow in your past. Mm. It's very hard to perceive things you've never seen before, isn't it? Yes. Cynthia? And just wondering, though, it, doesn't that seem to suggest that we're saying that there has to be an, a, an external input or something? And which, but if, isn't it possible that we can create anything? I mean, if, if we're saying that it's cognizance only, it, wouldn't there be the sense you could dream up anything in your dream world? How do you dream up things that you've, you've never dreamt before? But if, if everything's dependent on having happened before, what's the before? Exactly, right? When was the first time? That, I mean, that implies all sorts of things that, I mean, An the external, thing, yeah. There the was like a set that you yeah. could get with. Well, that's what the time immemorial statement that Rinpoche made seems to point to when is the before. Emily. How, how far back is before? <laughs> there is no before. Emily, help us out here. Isn't it also, though, the idea, not that everything is your mind, but that everything is mind? Yes. So it's this shared yes, yes. mind experience. So that makes me feel like within the shared agreed upon mind meld yeah. of the universe, I can have something happen to me that's never happened to me before. And I have been taught through being part of this collective mind experience that that is a surprising thing or a smelly thing or a ugly thing or whatever. Right. You're having an innate reaction to it, even though you've never reacted to it before. You have no idea what it is. You still have an innate reaction to it because you're sharing in some, some larger version of it. Right. It's the shared yeah. mind that gives Mary Beth that sense of being seen by the outside. Yeah, that's spooky. Yeah, it's spooky. Just like, it's just like the uh, Borg. Kevin, Kevin, it's sorry. It's like the Borg. We're all oh, collected. the Borg. Resistance is futile. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? One more? Going once. Going twice. No one else? We're dreaming of you. Well, here's at what about this. do you know do you know the name do you know the movie um what is it Harrison Ford and their replicants um, Blade Runner Blade Runner do you know the name of the book that it's from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep <laughs> That's such a great name That's such a great idea I'm sorry Chris last comment then we'll Yeah we'll so ultimately we're saying, how does this alleviate suffering? So, and that's what I came to through the analysis was, well, if everything's mind, mind is trying to figure out what's out there. It's an approximation. And we know that through science that we don't really perceive what's out there. We, we approximate it. 
we then manipulate it in our with our memory and everything but the closer you can get to what's out there the less you will suffer because you're perceiving what's out there whereas before you misperceived and so you suffered uh, that's a great last comment that yeah. that uh, we should talk further about because I'm not sure we we might all agree with that 100%. But that is sort of getting to the crux of the issue. Thank you for bringing that up. So yeah, why don't we close with our uh, dedicatory chant? No, not that one. <laughs> Here we are. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Dream on, huh? Thank you, Derek. <laughs> Good night. Good night. Uh, take Good night. care. See you soon. Be well. Sweet dreams. <laughs> <laughs>